I'm Dan Carell, CEO of the Digital Commerce Alliance, and this is Commerce Code, a weekly digital commerce podcast for leaders in card linking, loyalty and digital marketing, mobile wallets and payments, and financial data. Thanks for joining this running conversation with leaders in the industry. And if this podcast is helpful to you, come join us at the Digital Commerce Alliance. You can learn more at www.digcomall.org. This week is part two of my conversation with Mladen Vladic of FIS. Last week, Mladen and I talked about cryptocurrencies and rewards points. And this week, we're turning to mobile banking. Did mobile banking boom in the pandemic? And what does that mean for the future of digital commerce? Before we get to that interview, we'll dig into two recent stories that executives in digital commerce are talking about right now. First, Apple Pay's slow and steady ascent. And second, location tracking. Young people think it's creepy, but does it matter? All that's ahead. For now, a word from our sponsor, Vantage Score. Commerce Code is brought to you in part by Vantage Score. Nine of the top 10 banks and over 3,000 leading banks and fintechs use Vantage Score to predict and manage repayment risk. Learn more about the latest advances in credit scoring and how to grow your lending business by leveraging financial inclusion at VantageScore.com. Payments.com recently reported that Apple Pay may have surpassed MasterCard in the annual dollar value of transactions at $6 trillion. If this news comes as a surprise, you're not alone. Apple Pay has snuck up on a lot of us. Apple Pay was launched in 2013, but unlike other Apple product launches, it didn't see immediate explosive growth, and it didn't seem poised to change the market. But the growth was slow and steady and eventually very big, as we now know. One obvious factor driving Apple Pay is iPhone penetration, and it's grown a lot since 2013. Just this month, in September 2022, Apple's iOS operating system claimed over 50% market share in the United States, putting Android into second place for the first time. So that means there's plenty of room for growth in the United States still. And there's a lot of growth left for Apple to claim globally. In Europe, iPhones only have about a third of the market, and worldwide the number is around 15%. In all, about a billion people use an iPhone today. But there are an estimated 6 billion smartphones active in the world. Another basic factor in Apple Pay's quiet growth is that not everyone with an iPhone necessarily activates Apple Pay. But that's changing. As reported by the Wall Street Journal in August, as of 2016, 90% of iPhones did not have Apple Pay activated. By 2017, that number had dropped to 80%. Year after year, it just kept dropping. Now about 75% of iPhones do have Apple Pay activated. So after a decade of slow but steady growth in penetration and activation, the billion people with an iPhone in their pocket or purse represent the lion's share of those who use a mobile wallet for payments. In 2021, Apple Wallet accounted for 92% of all mobile wallet debit transactions. Which brings us to where we are today. According to comparison site trading platforms, Apple Pay is the second most popular digital payment system processing over $6 trillion. As we set up top, That may put Apple ahead of MasterCard and sets up Apple Pay to view its next target. 
Visa, which is at 10 trillion. From mobile payments to mobile advertising, are tailored advertisements creepy or cool? A recent survey by Cheetah Digital asked over 5,000 people in six Western countries if they thought that certain kinds of tailored offers or advertisements were, quote, creepy or cool. The report broke down responses by age range and by type of offer or ad. The study came across our radar from a website called Marketing Charts, which is exactly what it sounds like. And if you haven't subscribed to Marketing Charts, you might want to. It's pretty interesting stuff. One predictable result of the survey is that for every offer type, boomers were more likely to think something was creepy than Gen Xers, Millennials, and Gen Z. But after the boomers, it wasn't a simple matter of younger people being more comfortable with tailored advertisements. In some cases, Gen Z were more bothered by tailored offers than both Millennials and Gen X, and in others, it was about the same for all three groups. To look at offer types, Between 30 and 40% of people of all age groups said on the survey that a personalized offer from a brand after you've spent two or more minutes on their website was creepy rather than cool. People were more uncomfortable with tailored ads based on shopping activity on other sites, with 60% of boomers and 40% of the rest saying that that was creepy. Those two examples are pretty conventional these days, so it's interesting just to see that there's a fair bit of remaining resistance to some pretty well-established practices. But the other ideas the survey tested got more clearly into creepy territory. About 60% of people and 74% of boomers said that an ad related to a topic discussed near a smart device was more creepy than cool. The surprising thing here is perhaps that supposedly 40% of respondents thought it wasn't that creepy. About the same percentage of people thought that ads that follow across devices are creepy. That, to me, seems like a surprising result, given that these days just about everything is cloud-based and device agnostic, but apparently the typical user doesn't feel that way. And finally, the thing that was most creepy, according to the survey respondents, was ads from companies I don't know based on location data. Unsurprisingly, 78% of boomers found that to be creepy, but so did 63% of Gen Z and a similar proportion of millennials and Gen X. I want to pause on Gen Z tailoring location data and creepiness and whether it really matters. Pew Research defines Gen Z as people born between 1997 and 2012, so that includes all current teenagers. Pew has recently surveyed teens on their use of TikTok. And 67% of teens say that they use the app, with 16% saying that they use it, quote, almost constantly. The company sort of denies it, but it's been pretty well established that the reason TikTok's algorithm is so effective at feeding users perfectly tailored content is that the app gathers more information than any other about a user's searches, location, online activity, and much more. So when teens use TikTok, and most of them do, they're getting tailored content in part based on location and in part based on, well, everything else they do. And perhaps it's creepy to them, In some cases, perhaps they don't really know it, but it certainly isn't a deterrent to continued use. People talk about what's important to them, and then they go and do what's easy. Perhaps privacy is important. We talk about privacy like it's important, and I hope it is. But we're human, and we tend strongly to do what's easy. TikTok is easy, and manifestly, people like it, young people especially. So back to tailored marketing offers. 
We do see that older people are more negative on offers that are tailored out of non-permissioned data. And we see that young people are a little less negative about those kinds of offers, but not that much more negative, especially in some categories. As the TikTok example points out, though, it's not clear how much their attitude affects their behavior. That's something that folks are going to have to continue to work out in the industry and that we're going to be fighting over with TikTok for some time. Now we're turning to my conversation with Mladen Vladic of FIS about mobile banking. Mladen, thank you so much for joining us today on Commerce Code. So about a year ago, a little over a year ago, you had a conversation with us on Commerce Code about a few different things. And we just wanted to revisit some of the things that have happened because it's frankly crazy to think back a year plus and say, well, what's happened since? It's too much to even mention at this point what's happened since. It's been a lot. But I'd love to start with mobile banking. I mean, you, you've been in, very involved with FIS's Digital One mobile banking platform. So I think you've had front row seats to what's happened with mobile banking in the last you know year, two years, three years. And so I just wanted to start real quick with how you define mobile banking for your purposes, and then we can kind of get into some of the questions. It's a great starting point when it comes to the the digital one. So it's really the banking platform suite of solutions that offers a consumer-centric banking experience for customers, for business clients, and bankers. And it's providing consistency across digital and mobile self-service and banker-assisted channels. It is built on a single integrated platform, and it transforms the digital banking experience by providing continuous engagement across the enterprise with real-time access to customer, to the account, and to transactional data. Now, when I think about what's possible in payments, I, I would say, and as I think about over the course of the last couple of years, I say it continues to get redefined, revisited, and reimagined. The traditional lines between banking, payments, and commerce have all but dissolved. The rules that once limited who participates in money movement and how the movement happens have been rewritten. And this connected world is actually creating, I would argue, new opportunities to shape the future of commerce and financial services. And all of that being said, as a provider for the banking sector, we are very excited about what we see and to be able to power, if you will, that transformation that the financial sector is going through. You're obviously a provider to banks and have have that direct point of contact. And I guess I'll start with, you know, thinking about it from the consumer perspective, how much is what the banks are doing really driven by changes in consumer behavior? Because I know banks have to work on these things over kind of a long arc. And do you believe we saw real changes in consumer behavior that are consequential during the last couple of years of the pandemic? We goes without saying we saw a tremendous, tremendous change. I would say there are so many different aspects to the dynamic you were just talking about. So to me, I would say the first one probably to call out is the one that I would argue is the most impactful one. While COVID created incredible hardships for people around the world, it also helped catalyze the fintech-enabled digital solutions that play a critical role in improving access to financial products and services for underserved populations. 
Now, there's also, I would argue, generational dynamic to this trend. It comes as no surprise to any of us that millennials and Gen Z are two groups who are using the mobile banking apps the most. Our data, FIS data, based on the surveys with our clients and their customers, shows that 99% of Gen Z and 98% of millennials use a mobile banking app for a wide range of tasks. Maybe the last kind of layer to this that is equally important to us as we think about usage in general. We are seeing that 37% of those that we surveyed, they began a new banking relationship with the major national or global bank in the last 24 months. And I would argue that the mobile banking component of that experience played a huge role in that I'm just old enough now, I'm having a birthday soon that will solidify this, that I look around and essentially everyone is younger than me. That's just my, that's my default. And so I still have, you mentioned mobile check deposit. And to the extent that I get the occasional paper check now, I do the mobile check deposit I have for years, but I still have a fundamental anxiety about disposing of the paper check at any point in the future. Is this normal, Mladen? Is it okay for people like me to be anxious about disposing of a written check? I do think it's absolutely normal. You're okay then. You're not alone. But I do believe in general, we will continue to see that decline and adoption in, uh, I would say, usage across the board. I do believe, and we are all consumers, right? We all adopt at different pace. Ultimately, everything boils down to convenience and the comfort level. There's tipping points inside there too, right? So like somewhere along the way, many people got comfortable with not printing a paper ticket for the airplane. And for years, I, you know, I had the possibility or the option of an app-based thing. And I just, it felt like my phone wasn't reliable enough. I was worried about battery life, whatever. But I don't think I've printed a paper ticket out for, I don't know, it's, it's probably been a couple of years now. And I started travel again and you don't, you don't see as many. So there's tipping points in there too, sometimes well after the technology becomes available. Absolutely. And I do believe, you know, to your point, I think it's about the comfort level and doing something for the first time. If I do it once and I feel comfortable, it was a good experience and everything, you know, balanced just fine at the end of the day, then I'm comfortable to go through that experience again. If I encounter an issue, whatever that issue might be, then that is going to impact the pace at which I'm going to adopt more that is available to me. I really just think there's a delay in most tech adoption. Well, actually, it's not what I think. It's what I think we all know about how tech adoption works. Things become available, and then there's kind of a delay, and the thing that seemed obvious a few years before becomes reality at some not quite precisely known point in the future. And so as you look at 2023, 2024, maybe, in terms of mobile banking, do you see any areas that maybe seemed possible a few years ago, but you think are going to really actually happen now? I would argue that many of the behavior changes that we witnessed since the pandemic started in March of 2020, they were already underway, but I do believe that pandemic didn't necessarily that much innovate or introduce. It was more about the acceleration of those trends and adoption. What I found, you know, very interesting as we were looking through the survey data of our clients and their customers is that it is very obvious that the consumers are asking and looking to get more. So 43% of the respondents said the way that they bank has changed. 66% are saying they're uncomfortable going to the branch. And all of them, most of them are looking for more inclusive and all-encompassing digital banking experience. 
with all of this change that is transpiring, banks are facing a big challenge. How can banks provide the exceptional customer service and brand integrity that the customer demands today while dealing with the array of services that consumers are using in their financial journeys? And I do believe at the end of the day, it boils down to the guiding principle that we all know when we start building these product roadmaps. It's really about the concerted focus on the customer experience. If that's not your main focus, it's very hard to stay relevant to the consumer in 23. Coming right up, closing thoughts on the transformative potential of mobile banking. Mladen said something in the interview that I think is worth revisiting. It's a good example of why DCA's motto is trade for good. Mladen said that increased adoption of app-based banking wasn't just good for core banking customers and banks. It was a good development for the purpose of providing better access to banking to those who don't currently have access. Access to banking and financial services is pretty fundamental to quality of life anywhere in the world. And I'm guessing that if you're listening to this podcast, you can personally take for granted that you have access to banking services. But of course, not everyone can. The World Bank estimated in 2017 that there were 1.7 billion unbanked people in the world. That's about 20% of the world population. No access to banking prevents communities and families and individuals from thriving in a host of pretty basic ways. Mobile banking could make a huge difference here. When we think about smartphones these days, we might think about how we should really spend less time looking at our own smartphone or that our teenagers are spending too much time on TikTok. We've already discussed that in this episode. Fair enough, but the basic functionality of a smartphone can allow access to communication, public records, identification, and of course, banking at a very low cost. Since Steve Jobs released the first iPhone in June of 2007, about 80% of the world has gotten a smartphone. Do you remember what kind of phone you had in 2007? Was it a Nokia or a BlackBerry? I hung on to my BlackBerry for a very, very long time, but finally relented like so many other people and got an iPhone. Well, by 2011, smartphone penetration in the United States was 31%, and now the number is believed to be 88%. But smartphones have become so accessible that the global rate isn't far behind the US and Europe. The World Bank estimates that 78% of people over 12 years old in the world have access to a smartphone, which is to say a little over 20% of the world population doesn't have one, and that's pretty similar to the proportion of the world that is estimated to be unbanked. Those two groups of people are probably largely the same people. So we're at a point where even lower income people in developing countries are pretty likely to have access to a smartphone. And as the smartphone penetration rate continues to rise, which it is, it will be cutting directly into that last fifth of the global population that's unbanked. I talked offline about this with Mladen, and he used the example of government disbursements during emergencies, or even just regular payments that people are entitled to under various government programs. The old way to do this was with paper checks, and then after that came governments using prepaid cards. But getting funds out electronically directly to people is faster, more secure, can be managed better than distributing cards. Because of this, FIS now distributes government benefits like food stamps and electronic funds directly to recipients. But they do need those recipients to be able to access them using some kind of a tool, and smartphones are the most likely option. 
Global smartphone penetration will likely continue to increase well into the 90s. And when it does, it should provide a billion or more people with access to a bank account who didn't have it before. That's a huge deal from a human development perspective. Some global health experts will tell you that the single biggest force for improved life expectancy in the 20th century was the widespread availability of affordable soap. Penicillin, the Green Revolution, all that stuff are really important, but a far simpler thing, just regular soap, had the biggest impact. I'm hoping that as smartphones get ever closer to 100% penetration globally, they will in turn make banking nearly universally available. And if that happens, it'll make a big difference for the 1.7 billion people who don't have a bank account today. Commerce Code is a weekly podcast bringing you conversations with executives who are leading the way in digital commerce. If you like Commerce Code, your company should join the Digital Commerce Alliance and become part of our mission of advancing trade for good through standard setting, industry networking, conferences, and best practice sharing. Check out our website at www.digcomall.org. On behalf of DCA, have a great week. 